Welcome to the Zwift SBS podcast. Zwift is the app that turns indoor training into a game. With structured workouts, training plans and massive online group rides to make your training fun. Because fun is results. Fun is fast. Go to Zwift.com and start your free trial. Bonjour, 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 and welcome to the Zwift Cycling Central podcast for another look at the world of cycling for this fortnight. Uh, joining me like uh, every other episode is Dave McKenzie. How are you, Dave? Christophe, I'm very good. You might get rid of me uh, physically, but virtually you won't, my friend. I'm here to stay. Uh, we're in lockdown, but that's all right. Thank God for um, latest in communication technology, hey? Absolutely. We are a few days away from Milan San Remo Monument. We're going to talk about this. And who else? And we have in the program that Matt Goss. How are you, Matt? Good, thank you guys. Thanks for having me on. It's been nice to, to go over some old memories and, you know, discuss what's happening in the sport at the moment. Absolutely. So, uh, Milan San Remo is just a few days away. Of course, you won uh, Milan San Remo. I was going to say, it's that time of the year where you start thinking again about it, but we're in August. It's a bit weird, yeah? It's going to be very strange, you know. Like, I think we've seen last week already with Strata Bianchi to see a race in such hot conditions, but... Look, Milan San Remo is probably not as quite as extreme as that one, but look, it's it's good to have racing back on the screens again. Gossi, um, I, I want to delve into the the 2011 edition that you won because I just rewatched it earlier today. But first of all, how different will it be for the guys racing it this weekend? We talked about the heat in Strada Bianca. It's going to be it's certainly going to be different than in March. But how different and how much of a difference do you think it'll make to the result? Look, it's a tough one. Milan San Remo is such a long race that no matter what the weather, you, you're going to be tired when you get to the end of that one. But we see, what was it? I can't remember, 2013, where it was, we were bathed in snow and it was absolutely horrible. So, uh, look, this is not going to happen this year. It's going to be, you know, you would expect a lot warmer, a lot drier race. But that on the other side, it, it, you've just got to be on top of it, I think. You know, it's going to be easy to be not drinking and eating enough because... You know, it's going to be a much warmer race, I think. But look, we'll see. It, it, that race can depend whether the wind's coming, you know, headwind, tailwind. So uh, just looking forward to having a good race and seeing, uh, seeing the guys, you know, back at it again. So it's, it's a different route this year. So it might be a different type of race altogether. But at the end of it, there's still a podio at the end. Talk to us about what is that climb like? Yeah, look, it, it's one of those climbs that, you know, if you went out your door and you rode to the bottom of the Poggio 25 kilometres away and you rode up it, yeah, it's a climb, but it's nothing too crazy. But at the end of, you know, by the time you put your neutral zone into Milan San Remo, you've, you've nearly done 300 kilometres by that point. Uh, so that's a different kettle of fish. And, and when you get to the top, you know, you're basically straight shot downhill before you've got a couple of k's flat to the finish. Uh, it, it's a weird one. It's super fast. Uh, you know, I remember you're going up there, you're on the brakes coming into some of the corners, which is just, you know, crazy to think about. But it, it's going to be a deciding factor, whether there's a small group away, whether there's a big bunch, that's always the last test of the race. And there's always action, there's always somebody going to try their luck. So it, it's, it's one of the most pivotal points in the race. Gossi, let's talk about 2011. Um, as I said, I rewatched uh, one of the versions I saw on, on YouTube earlier today. And it was the Belgian commentary. And um, it was, I mean, it was, a, they're all, I love, I've loved every edition of Milan San Remo that I've watched. And this one was great because, to recap quickly, there was Greg Van Avermaet in the break, Stuart O'Grady, of course, a good mate of yours and, and former teammate, not a teammate uh, on that edition. We're in the break. Uh, Van Avermaet attacks up the Poggio. You were not mentioned in the Belgian commentary until four kilometres to go. 
And, and to their credit, actually, in their defence, they only realised you were in that group. And immediately when they realised you were there, they said, Matt Goss, the top favourite, yeah? The top favourite. I've seen, I think I must have seen that footage, you know, the top favourite there. Yeah, did you? So what was, what was going through your mind at that time? Because you'd, you'd come off a pretty good start to the season. You'd won a stage in Paris-Nice. When you went over the top, and it was, well, you hadn't caught Van Avermaet at that stage, but were you thinking, this is, I can win this? Yeah, look, I felt pretty good all day. It was a weird race. You know, I don't want to go right back to halfway through, but the first important point, I guess, was I think it was the money that year. We went over the, the, the climb midway through the race, about 100 kilometres to go. Uh, and it split there. And we were, Pizzato and I were the last guys to make it to the front. And I had no teammates. So my job there was basically hide for as long as I could. And it all come down to the Poggio. There was a group away. We had Van Avema and Stewie and a few guys. I knew I felt good. I knew I could follow the guys if I had to. Um, and I think there was about five or six guys that went across. And by that point, I was starting to think, right, this is getting pretty dangerous now. And about probably a kilometre from the top, I think Nibbly went. And so Nibbly and I rode across. And I actually only got onto that front group as we turned left to start the descent to the Poggio. So, you know, a bit of timing, a bit of, bit of luck. There was certainly some luck on the first corner of that um, descent because I come down there. Because we caught the group just at the top, we were going quite quick compared to them. And I come down that first corner, absolutely outbreak myself by a mile. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> fortunately, that was where we, I caught Stewie. And I just remember screaming at the top of my lungs, like, to Stewie to stay left. And I've come <laughs> straight through and he's turned the corner just behind me. And uh, luckily, you know, that was chaos averted there. But um, yeah, so I kind of just hit in the group and then tried to put myself at the front for that descent, which I nearly, well, I did, but nearly didn't. And then just stay out of the carnage on that descent because it's, that's one of the most important parts as well. Getting up, it's one thing, but getting down the other side is just as important. And you had to follow two... Well, Cancelara that day probably wasn't as good a descender. I mean, that's a, that's a funny thing to say when you watch it. But Nibley and Cancelara are two of the best sort of renowned descenders in the world. Nibley was the one, I think, forcing because you still had to catch uh, Greg Van Avermaet. And from what I watch of the replay... You were focused on Cancellara a little bit that day, and you and it was was it one of those moments where I mean I think any pro cyclist who's had a big victory, things just sort of fall into place all the way in. Did it feel like it? When you look back on it now, is that what happened? You know, you, you sort of covered Cancellara, and all the other guys that mattered in that group of ten, someone else covered them, so you were able to sit back and then wait for that sprint. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things, you know, maybe it was lucky I've been having a good year. Even from like, you know, middle of 2010, I've been picking up some nice wins. I remember come once we got to the bottom there and we come onto the flat section, that run in, I, I put my focus on Cancellara because he is one guy, if you give him 20 metres, he can ride 20 metres in front of the bunch to the finish. And I, I honestly took a bit of a gamble that I, I was willing to lose the race to win it, I guess is the right way to put it. But I chased him and I think maybe I followed Pizzato or one or other two little moves really mm. straight away. But I put my major effort into making sure that I, I kept Cancellara in the group and I let the others kind of chase each other. And, um, you know, fortunately on the day that, that worked. Um, but, yeah, it was definitely a, a conscious effort to think, well, I've got a certain amount of energy to spend here and I need to pick and choose where I spend it. So um, the math sat it up that day, but, uh, you know, it could have went anyway. But uh, there was a plan for, you know, what to do, especially because I had no teammates. I had no one left in that front group. So it was about just trying to use the gas when, when it was needed. How much did that wind change your, your life? Uh, look, it, it's, it's crazy. You go, you know, I, I've won big races, you know, like Pilway is, you know, an old World Cup, you know, been on the podium in Gent-Wevergen, but when you finally win a race like that, you stop thinking, 
you know, maybe I can win, maybe I can win, one day I can win. And you start thinking with the attitude of, all right, I've won these races now, I can win these races. It's not something that I one day can do. It's something that I've done. It's something that you can do going forward. So, uh, look, it, it was, you get a lot of respect, but, you know, at the same time, it's more of a personal thing where you, you get that realisation that, it's not just a dream. It's something that you can do. Where, where's the trophy? Where's the trophy now? Back downstairs, actually, where I <laughs> too much light, though. Um, <laughs> I thought about getting it out, but I, I, it's a weird trophy. You probably would, on the screen, it would look kind of funny because it's just like a, a perspex cylinder that's got like an engravement in through the middle of it. But uh, yeah, that's probably the only trophy that really sits in the house. There's not too many. You look back, Gossie, and you know, talk about a couple of your other results and, and, and big victories. This surely has to be the top of the tree, is it, for you? Absolutely. You know, I think, you know, I grew up watching this race. I grew up watching, you know, the Tour de France, all these races like every Australian cyclist did. And to watch a lot of Aussies before me get so close and never actually pull it off, um, it's nice to be the first one for sure. You know, it's, it's definitely, it's a monument. It's a, the, the highlight of my career. But, you know, a race that I, I always dreamed of winning and a race that I, I thought was a possibility, you know, for me, obviously the Tour de France, you know, that's never, I'm never going to win. But that was something that was realistic. It was something that I really, you know, set focus on, especially in that, that, that year. And when you can win a race that you've trained for and focused on for, you know, since, well, what would have been, you know, October the year before, it's nice to be able to see all that fruition come to come to end so if we look at this year coming uh we all been speaking about uh gilbert you know we know he's missing that monument in his uh, the, the whole of his career uh how much prep do you think has gone into actually being on that start line no matter what and making sure that he goes home with that weird trophy as you said <laughs> well, hopefully he gets a cool one. But um, <laughs> look, he's, an, he's the ultimate professional. You look at the guy, he's been around for as long as anyone that's left there at the moment from, you know, he was professional before me and, you know, still going now and still super competitive. So, you know, his preparation's probably not that bit different to previous years. You know, it's, it's probably just fine tuning things because we are a different time of the year. We, it's a different lead up to racing that everyone's had. So it, it's going to be a bit more of an unknown, but look, like I said, he's, a, he's an ultimate professional, but uh, it's a tricky one for him because if the Poggio was just that probably three or four Ks closer to the finish, he'd probably have three, three trophies in his bag right now for it. But, but that's why San Remo is so good. I think, you know, anyone can win it. You know, you could be talking about Gilbert and Caleb Ewan, you can talk about Nibali all in the same sentence for one race. And there's not many races that you can do that. So then on that notion... Can Phil do it? I mean, we'd love to see it, wouldn't we? Because it, 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 it'd just sort of top off something that really no other cyclist has done almost, uh, won every monument. Can he do it? Oh, I think he can definitely do it. You know, I, I hope he does. You know, it'd be mm. awesome to see. You know, I don't know how many times he's been on the podium there. He was on the podium with myself in 2011. I, I would hate to think how many times he's been there or been close or been caught within a, you know, a sniff of the victory. But um, I'd love to see him do it. Um, and I hope he does get up there. So on a scale of 1 to 10, the most stupid question I'm going to ask, would you prefer Caleb or Gilbert to win? Oh, I was actually just thinking when you said that. You know, <laughs> <laughs> be yeah, careful. Be careful. Tough, isn't it? <laughs> no, you always want to see Aussies do well. You know, it's funny, isn't it? Like the race has never been won by an Aussie. Then in two years, it's won twice, you know, with, uh, with Gero. Um, and Caleb's been close as well. So, I, you know, it, it suits him down to the ground. You know, he's one of these sprinters that can get up a hill well 
and he's an Aussie, you know, who doesn't like to see an Aussie win? Yeah, how much pressure actually on that, Gossie? And now that you're, you know, you're on the other side of the fence, but I guess you still watch the pro scene sort of close enough. How much pressure is on a guy like Caleb? Not just because this is, a, this is unlike any other year. His chances, his opportunities are so limited. So how much pressure will be on him? And, and how much pressure will he put on himself for MSR this year, do you think? Well, I guess I know myself personally, when I was racing, you know, you always get this pressure from the outside, but the biggest pressure comes from yourself, I think anyway. You know, if you're really focusing on that, you've trained towards it, you know, what somebody says or what they might think about you doesn't make a difference when you're going up those climbs. You're thinking what you've got to do and how you're going to win that race. Look, there's going to be a lot of pressure. I think he really stamped his authority last year at the tour, the, you know, the, the dominant fashion that he, he was winning races there. And that's going to help him, I think, going into this, into Milan San Remo, because, again, that gives that realisation of, like, all right, I'm here, I'm winning these races, the best people in the world, and I'm, I'm beating him. So I think that you know, he's still going to have pressure. You know, like you said, it's such a condensed season with so little racing and, and so much expectation on every race because they're so valuable at the moment. So there's going to be huge pressure. But look, if you can win stages, multiple stages at the Tour de France and you can deal with the pressure of, you know, Amalan San Remo, I think. And this year at Milan San Remo, it's going to be only six riders per team compared to, to seven before. Uh, does that play against probably a sprinter uh, because you get probably one less lead or there's one less member that can help you? Or, you know, what, 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 what's the effect? Because it'll be the same number of riders, more lower class teams, if I can say this. Uh, so same number of riders, but lower number of riders per team, six only. Uh, it definitely makes it tr trickier. You look back at races like the Olympics. You know, the Olympics in mm. 2012, we ended up riding around and we sprinted for about 30th because you've got small numbers. Okay, there we didn't have race radios. That makes it a little bit more tricky again. But the less numbers there is in a team, the less people you've got to help win, especially if you're a sprinter and you want to have one or two guys there at the finish. Um, there's a lot more... Well, what's the right word? There's a lot more people taking risks, taking chances and thinking, well, I'm not going to work here. I'm going to let this other team do it. And you're relying a lot on the, the, the collaboration between teams. If you've got a sprinter, you want to make sure that you're talking to all those sprinter teams and say, right, let's chuck one or two up so as we get that, that same number of workers as opposed to just sitting back and trying to hope that it comes to a sprint. Because as you say, you've got a lot more riders and a lot more styles of riding across those people and a lot more different a lot of different tactics across more teams so it's it's difficult to contain the race so it's definitely going to make it harder and a lot more i won't say chaotic but uh, less predictable so um but if you've got four sprinters teams there who are all committed to having a sprint you know they'll, they'll work together well it's going to be uh, it's going to be interesting um just want to sort of digress slightly gossy and you, we talk about chaotic and pressure and I'd love to get your opinion on this. Uh, overnight in the Tour of Poland, the first stage, mass sprint to the line. Uh, for our listeners who haven't seen it, it's all over social media, sort of unfortunately in some ways, because it was a nasty crash at the end. Dylan Gronewagen heading for the line, uh, one of the obviously quickest sprinters around at the moment, and Fabio Jakobsen trying to come past him. They hit shoulders, hit, hit bars, and then Jakobsen goes into the barriers, crashes. There's, a, there's been plenty of banter online. As a former sprinter yourself, what's your opinion of what unfolded and what, what do you take away from it? Look, yeah, it, it, it's a tricky one, isn't it? And, you know, I'll be up front. I've only woke up the following day. I didn't watch the race live. And I've seen clips online. And it's hard to make a perfect assessment of what I think is right and wrong here because, you know, I don't know if there is a right and wrong, but... 
Um, I think everyone can see that Ronald Wagon's definitely moved off the line. Look, yeah, it probably should be a disqualification, but I think I've seen riders do a lot worse than this. And what I think is, you know, we've spoken about this for a long time. I've done it myself. You know, you've been sprinting and you're running across the feet of barriers. I think that there needs to be something done with the standardisation of the final kilometre of bike races. You know, there's been too many accidents. You know, I know they're trying to get better and better with this each year, but, you know, you look back as far as Torhushov when he got hit with the, the big green hand and cut his yeah. arm off and was forced to to leave the tour. And, you know, we've seen a lot of crashes that involve barriers and there, I think there has to be something done, especially in World Tour cycling. You know, these guys are doing 70-plus kilometres an hour. I think that was downhill from the look of that sprint. So it's pushing even more. So... Like I said, it's a tricky one. I, I think the Grunewald has moved. It's caused the crash, but I think that crash was probably made a lot worse by having a barricade that was maybe not set up right, maybe not in the right position. I, I, you know, it's really tricky. You're retired, mate. Go flat out. Come on, pay out on whoever you want to. <laughs> but yeah, but my, I guess well, my point. My point to your to to sort of just reply to you for a second. And you're right, it was slightly downhill, super fast. You know, I mean, sprints are fast anyway, but it was a dead straight road. And there was a couple of comments saying, oh, they need to standardise barriers. And I agree with that. But I mean, you know, as well as anyone, you hit a barrier at 70 kilometres an hour, it's going to move. And sometimes it's not going to react. So like part of me says, and, and I've been critical of the UCI in the past, but part of me says, shouldn't the onus be on Gronewagen for this one? Because he, he... you know, he obviously went off his line. You can see it from the aerial shot. And I'm not trying to sort of pay out on Gronovagan. He's a, he's a fine young gentleman. I've interviewed him. He's a, he's a lovely kid. But he's made an error here. And he'll be hurting for it, no doubt. But what, do you think there needs to be a bit more analysis, of, you know, taken away from it? I think if somebody's in the situation, you know, that they're in hospital fighting for life, then there needs mm. to be more started, more looking at what's happened to cause this. Yeah. Uh, you know, like I said, bike road is always going to move, but... Uh, you know, from what I see, Gronenwagen went down as well. He's not there to crash himself. Yeah. Um, okay, that was probably after the fact when the barriers got hit and they flicked out and took him out. You know, and I know what it's like to be sprinting at 75 kilometres an hour in those races. You, you've got your head down part of the time. I, I don't think it was a deliberate manoeuvre to, to cause an accident type that. You know, he's probably trying to close the gap a little bit. And he's definitely, don't get me wrong, I think he's, he's in the wrong. You know, definitely that's caused the accident. But, yeah, I, I just think that, you know, Sprinting downhill, that doesn't really matter. Everyone's going fast anyway. If they were mm. 72 or 78 kilometres an hour, that crash would have been the same. Um, you know, it is a straight run. But one of the things I noticed when I stopped racing, when I was at the end of my career, the amount of risks that people take is so much more than when I first started. And I think the level of respect is so much less. From the know, riders? From the riders to each other. Yeah, wow. I really noticed. So when we were sprinting, you know, we'd have three trains. There'd be myself... There'd be Cav, there'd be Gripe, or there'd be Kits or whoever it was. We always gave each other space and you always did your sprint and whoever won, won. When, now I, when, I, when I finished, I noticed that there was a lot more fighting, a lot more trying to take people off their own teammates' wheels and trains and, and willingness to, you know, swerve and put themselves for, at all costs into the position to get a result. And, you know, I watch the sprints now and it looks so much more chaotic than I think they used to. Um, and I think this goes towards having more crashes like this in the finish, but... Um, yeah, I, it's a tricky one. Like I said, I've only watched one or two clips of it, so I wouldn't be, I'm not going to sit here and say this is exactly what should be done or should happen, but I think it's probably a combination of two, the two. 
Uh, let's hope that uh, he pulls through as well because he's, mm. uh, at the minute he's, uh, he's sitting in a, or he's lying in a hospital in an induced coma. Um, that must be horrible for, for the family and for the team as well. Can you, uh, have, have you been in that position where you know, one of your teammates is, is lying somewhere? and then you, like, What does that do for the rest of the Tour of Poland for the team? Oh, look, it, it's, it's horrible. I think even if it's your teammate or somebody that's just in the bunch you're racing with, nobody, nobody wants to see somebody that spends, you know, 200 days of their life with, you know, maybe not every single day, but, you know, you're doing 100 race days, 70 race days a year. You spend a lot of time with the same guys and you never want to see somebody injured. Um, you know, accidents and crashes are part of the sport. Um, and it is tricky sometimes to, to be able to block that out of your mind and then go for the sprint again the following day. Um, so that, they'll, they'll be suffering. Every one of those guys will be suffering, you know, grown wing as much as well, probably more than all of them, you know, but um, I think that's what makes the sprinters sprinters a little bit. And that's why I found in the end, I didn't have that kind of, I wasn't willing to risk as much as some of these other guys. And I thought, well, what's the point in trying to, to be around that point and sprint if you're, you're second guessing everything where, you know, these guys will go back out tomorrow. They'll sprint. They'll still put their, 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 their lives on the line, I guess. But I think they're always going to have that thought of, geez, yesterday's still pretty fresh. Mm-hmm. Let's move on uh, to, to the, the rest of the, the season. And, and Maka and I have debated this many times on saying, oh, it's going to be crazy. But uh, it is getting crazy. There's so much racing to watch. It's almost like I feel I need a second TV uh, to just be able to, to follow this up. Uh, yesterday, Maka, we had the uh, Turin-Milan. Um, uh, Milano-Torino. Milano-Torino. The other way around, yep. Yeah, exactly. I should know the race has been on since 1876. Yeah, on, 1876. <laughs> uh, but it's the first time that it probably was made for the, the sprinters. Uh, and it's a French one that has won it. Yeah, I know Demar. Demar, yeah, it was a pretty good, uh, pretty good win. Caleb, Caleb was up there. So I think... It's got to be said that Caleb, uh, that was his first race restart. He didn't yeah. race any of the, or anything since the, uh, the lockdown. So that was his first time back among 17 other riders. I think he'd be pretty happy with that. And look, I think any of the sprinters who placed in the top five, I would imagine, and Gossie, I'll bring you in on this. I'd imagine they'd be just happy to get back racing and more to the point, sort of starting to sharpen the teeth for the Tour de France. Can we believe we're talking about the Tour de France (laughs) is still coming in a few weeks' time? I mean, uh, everything now for them would be building around the Tour de France, I'd imagine, yeah? Yeah, look, it's again, it's going to be such an interesting tour, an interesting well, three, four months of racing we've got because no one knows what how everyone is. You know, normally you've done the Dauphiné or if you go to Milan San Remo, you've done Sereno or Paris Nice. Everyone knows who's going well, where at the moment there's still so much unknown, you know, like you can let somebody nip up the road, but they could be strong as strong as an ox after the amount of Zwift everyone's been doing. <laughs> so, you know, especially for the sprinters too, you know, for the climbers, I guess they ride a lot to a number. They ride to a point. They know their thresholds. They know what, what they're going to do and for how long they can do it. But a sprinter, you've got to have that, that quick twitch muscle. You've got to have that reaction time. You've got to be used to bumping somebody. You've got to be used to leaning on somebody, making a decision like at 175 metres to go, 225 metres to go, when to start your sprint and how long that's going to last. And I think there's so many more unknowns for those guys going into these next few months. And actually, just on that, you make a good point. It makes me think, There'd be some teams as well and some sprinters who have brought in new lead-out men and they wouldn't have had a chance to really train together, work together. So there'd be some guys now, you know, like a group of three or four riders, sprint train, that are just starting 
to try and work out their train and they've only got one or two races to do it before the tour. Yeah. That'd be hard, wouldn't it? Monument and a couple of World Tour races before <laughs> Tour de France. You know, at this point, you're seven months in. You've worked with that guy, you know, probably 40, 50 times. You, you're used to your wheel touching the back of their wheel. You're used to, like, you know, your handlebar on their hip, you know. You know how they work. You know how they're operating. So this is going to be pretty interesting, you know. Like, they're professionals. They, got, they know what they're doing. They know how to ride a bike. That doesn't change. But it's that confidence and that second nature reactions that they're not going to have be, you know, as as brushed up on as they would be at this point of the season normally. You talk about the monuments. Uh, a question for you guys: What makes a monument a monument? Why do we say like? And my next question is: Why Stratebianca as is not yet a monument? Or will it become a monument? Well, I think we'll let the guy who's won one answer first, because <laughs> I don't know the I don't know the full answer. Don't put me under the bus here. <laughs> I think this is the oldest races, isn't it? It's it's basically the, it's, the oldest stable stables for the of the uh, of the calendar. Yeah, I'd agree with Gossie. I'd say it's the historical. I mean, cycling is such a historical sport, such an old sport, and the monuments. I mean, Liège, Bastogne Liège, is the oldest race in the world. Yeah, um, and all the rest are pretty old as well. I think the year you won, Gossie, was the one hundred first edition. Yeah, somewhere on memory hundred. 100, 101, somewhere around that point, I think it was. Yeah. But there's some of the oldest races, you know, when you go back and look at the history of these races, there's stories from the 1800s of, you know, races, because I think they missed a few during um, the wars and bits and pieces. I think I remember reading, it might have been early 1900s of, you know, one year it was snow on there and I was stopping at people's houses and the winner was some astronomical amount of hours. But, you know, I think it's just that history and the age of these races that, that gives them that status. So no Stratebianke um, on the monuments list yet. No, I think it's got to. I think it's got to earn its stripes. I love, I love that race. I love that. It's race. good. It's good. But <laughs> monuments are, are right up there. Gossie, do you? One thing I got to say about you, and I'm interested. You you hit the absolute highs of the sport. You won the biggest. We talk about Milan San Remo. Uh, I think you were only the second Australian to win a monument. Obviously Stewie winning O'Grady winning Paris Roubaix. Yeah. And you won Milan San Remo. But when you retired, and what amazed me, you were quite happy to just disappear from the sport. Obviously, you're still interested and you still love watching cycling, but you were quite happy to just step completely out of the sport and not have any involvement. It's, uh, do you miss it at all? Do you ever sit back and go, gee, you know, I miss, I miss not being at more bike races? Or are you quite happy just hiding away down there in Launceston? <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, when I did finish, I'd, I'd kind of, I'd had enough. I wanted a break. I wanted to do something different. You know, I, I didn't really want to go down the, well, I didn't hadn't have plan. I didn't think of going down the director path. You know, I had small kids. I didn't want to spend more time away as well. Um, it was only probably the Giro in, uh, when was that? 2017 or 18, I think it was. It must have been 18. I was sitting at home on the couch. And I was actually texting Stewie and he said he was going to do some of the the tours. So if you, if you want another guy to come along, you know, I'll, I haven't been, haven't been around the sport. I haven't been involved in a long time. And that was the first time I kind of started to get itchy feet a little bit again. I thought, oh, I need to get back there and, and see what's happening. So I flew over and did that with, um, with Stewie and the movie crew in, I think it was 2018. Uh, and then I really enjoyed it. You know, I enjoyed getting back on the bike and, and riding and, and telling the stories and catching up with a bunch of mates that, you know, were still racing. So from that point on, I kind of, did enjoy doing a bit more. Went to the Tour Down Under. Went to the Tour de France last year. Obviously, all that's a bit tricky this year. So, I've enjoyed getting back there and catching up and, and being involved in that aspect. But, um, yeah, look, I, I enjoy watching it. I enjoy following it. I enjoy catching up with everyone. 
But yeah, I just I didn't re- didn't really want to go down the director path. There was a bit of chat about some management type of um, position with you know with you know writer management, but again, um, you know, we decided to move back to Australia so the kids could spend some time with their family back here and see their grandparents and all that type of stuff. Yeah, nice work. Well played. Well played. What's what's your outlook? What's your outlook on the uh, the new generation? You know, the Evan Paul, the Van Aert, uh, you know, all these guys, uh, the Bernal, of course, uh, that are so young and winning so young. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? You know, the, I remember when Andy Schleck was uh, in, on the podium of the Giro at such a young age, and and winning the Tour, like, it was it was it was crazy. You know, but that was probably one generation almost before these guys and. They're, they're dominating the sport at such a young age. And I think it also just maybe shows the level that they're actually racing at at under 23. You know, I think now when I was racing, it was a big step up to, to world tour or pro tour at the time, whatever it was called. Um, and it took a lot of years to adapt, but the, the young guys now are so much more professional, I think, than what they maybe were 10 years ago, 10, 12, 15 years ago. And they're turning up in the shape to win races, you know, they might be young, but they've done the kilometers. They've done the, they've done the, the, the training and they're, they're, they're using the tools that we would only use, you know, with CSC, we, we got SRMs on the bikes and, you know, you, you start using this. These guys are using that from when they're 10, 12 years old, you know, when they're first getting on the bike and they, they, they know how to make themselves in the shape that they need to be when they, when they arrive. I was, I was going to say, um, science, whether we like it or not, it, it's got to have played a role in the last sort of, I guess, five, well, we know more than five years, 10 years, but specifically in the five years and longer, teams now are plucking out these guys like Egan Bernal, aren't they? They know they know he's got the engine and then they say, right, all we have to do now is develop him, teach him how to ride in, in a peloton and deliver him at the base of a climb. Is that, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but is that how you see it? Yeah, absolutely. I think so, for sure. You know, and, and the, these teams have got us big enough to support them. You know, they, yeah. they've got the, the firepower there. You, look, you go into Sky, if you're good enough to ride up a climb as fast as the best guys, you're going to have the best team support there. But I think when I definitely turned pro, and I'm for sure probably even more so in the generations before, there's a lot of hierarchy in a team, you know. You didn't step into a team and then go race with Carlos and Fabian and those guys like when I turned up. Um, you know, they, they, they had their right to be racing these races and they were the leaders because they had the proven background where... Now, I think, say, especially in the, the Grand Tours and the climbing stuff, if they can put the number out and they can perform, well, there's no reason they can't, they can't do it on a climb with you know, everyone else around them. So Bernal or Froome as a leader of Ineos? Um, you look, I think with what's happening with the contracts there, it's going to be, they're going to put their eggs in the Bernal basket, aren't they? Oh, Jesus. Right. Yeah. You beat me to it, Christoph. I know. <laughs> so is, that, is, that, is he your tip then for the tour? Um, Outside of like talk about overall all riders from other teams, yeah, etc. Yeah. Look, I think G's still pretty good. You know, well, obviously I say pretty good. You know, he was second last year as well. But <laughs> yeah, um, he's going all right. Yeah. <laughs> um, Jeez, you've really jumped the fence, haven't you? <laughs> you can't put it past him. And look, he is is a class bike rider. And to be to win and then back up the following year with second place, I haven't studied the route in that much detail to know. The, the, the amount of kilometres in time trials and that type of stuff. But, well, Bernal's, it's going to be close. You, you got two guys from the one team that can win it and were first and second last year, weren't they? So, it just hopefully that they can keep that hierarchy and that team under order and, and see how that goes. I'll tell you what, one other question for you. Um, a man that's down from your way and he was actually he had a pretty good ride 
just a few days ago in in France, Richie Port, he's had a couple of shockers at the tour, like through no fault of his own, nasty crashes. I still hold hope and believe Richie turns up in good shape, good health, a little bit of luck, he can make podium. What do you think? I think, um, look, being from Tassie, I'd love to see an Aussie guy again. I'd love to see him on the podium. You know, like you said, he's been, he's had the shape. Mm. He hasn't had the fortune or, you know, he's, he's been brought undone with a couple of nasty stacks, hasn't he? So um, mm. I'd like to see it. Um, it's going to be tricky. I, Richie always seems to have that one bad day. And if he can contain that one bad day to only be a semi-bad day, then I think he's a real shot of being there. He, he deserves to be up there. You know, like I said, he's been consistent for the last, what, six, seven years. Around yeah. that. Um, and I'd love to see him up there. Hopefully he can keep it rubber side down and, um, you know, keep that bad day to a, a real minimum. And then I think we'll see him there. It, the Grand Tour is one of those things. You get stronger and stronger and more and more consistent as you get older. Um, and hopefully that plays into his hands. Micah, do you have any other uh, things you want to talk about? Because there's oh. you know, L'Occitane, there's so many uh, racing that has happened. And uh, we've seen that at L'Occitane, uh, riders, including Ineos, have been complaining about the, was- the, the, the mask wearing and the, the, all the protocol around, which would not be the same at the Tour. That uh, seems to be quite a bit of a discussion in Europe about it. Yeah, there has been, hasn't there? I mean, uh, gee, I think we're all in the same boat. <laughs> we just want the cycling season to happen. We want mind. it to get underway. I'd rather be in the little Tassie boat at the moment compared yes. to the, some of them. But, but we, we, all have, we all have our like, little mask and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> really handy somewhere. <laughs> oh, it's crazy, isn't it? Like, but it is a weird one. You, you go and watch football where they're not allowed to high-five each other, but two seconds later, they're tackling each other. Yeah. It's probably the same in, in, in the tour or the racing. They wear masks to sign. They wear masks. I understand it's all limiting the amount of exposure to, to people and being around people. But it's the same 200 guys that are then going to be huffing and puffing and snotting and slobbering on each other going up the climbs as well. So um, <laughs> it's a tricky one. It's, it's either way. I, I want the tour. I said the other day, uh, Gossi, I want the Tour de France to start tomorrow. Let's just get it underway. Let's get yeah, it happening. Yeah, let's just get it happening. <laughs> <laughs> Will you be sitting up? Yeah, mate, I pick and choose my days. I'm a bit biased. I obviously used to be a sprinter, but I tend to not watch those ones because it's too long to get to the end half the time with not a lot of action. But, um, <laughs> now you know what we're complaining about for all those yeah, years. <laughs> I'm, I'm one of those guys completely forgotten. When you, when you jump off the bike, you're like, it should be harder. It should be more hills. It should be more... <laughs> but, um, you know, it's when you're on that side of the fence, it's the last thing you want, especially at the tour, you want a day where you can switch off a little bit. But uh, definitely I pick and choose the days and uh, all the important days of the race, I like to stay up and watch and... Uh, you know, it, it's it's still something that I get a lot of joy out of sitting up there and watching, especially when those are doing well and and um, you know people suffering the climbs like I used to have to. <laughs> so, like you've never been in that position, but you've been in a professional peloton. How edgy do you think the guys are to also get started at the tour? The tour being the pinnacle, but comes very early this year in the season. Yeah, look, it's going to be tricky. It's going and the the tour is always so nervous, you know. I've crashed in a neutral zone just because everyone's so so on edge. And, you know, you watch some of these first stages of the tour in the past years, and the ones I've been part of, there's so many crashes, there's so many accidents in the in the first stage because everyone's so on edge, everyone's so nervous, everyone's so excited, everyone, there's so much pressure and there's so much media around it that uh, there's so many thoughts going through everyone's head. So, look, again, that's with six months of racing under your belt and some big races to to go like you know to have under there so it's going to be it's going to be interesting but again they're the top of their game they know what they're doing 
there'll be some little bingles. There'll be some, you know, some some silly mistakes, but they'll get the job done at the end of the day. Absolutely. And one last uh, discussion I think we, we, we can have is a transfer market. Uh, overnight, Daryl Himpi announced that he was moving to Israel, uh, joining Chris Froome from next year. Uh, that's one good move for Israel, probably one less good for uh, Mitchelton Scott. Uh, what are your thoughts on these guys? Well, actually, let's just throw it straight to Gossie because, and we should also mention you were teammates, obviously, on that team, Gossie, with, with Impey and the rest of the crew. Uh, were you surprised or was it, I guess, all good things are got to come to an end at some point? Uh, when I first saw the news, the, the article on Soccer News, um, I was a bit like, ah, maybe it's just a bit of publicity, a bit of, you know, a bit of stuff being thrown around. But I was surprised yesterday when I seen that he, he was moving there. Not surprised that he's going there, but, you know, normally when you hear a rumour, it takes a little while to bubble to the top and see what actually happens. But um, the role that he's going there to do, he'll be fantastic. You know, like he's, he's worked with Gero. He's, he's proven himself at the absolute highest level. Um, he was one of my, you know, most, my most... Oh, I always appreciate what's the word like. He's a guy that I needed the most when I was racing. You know, he was—he's awesome at what he does. He can lead a guy around a bunch. He can win a race himself. He's been in the peloton long enough now that he'd be the best road captain going round. You know, so I think the role that he's going there to do, which I th- as I read was road captain to help with Froome, he, he'd be perfect. He can ride on the side of the bunch in the wind, keep him in the front, make the calls of you know what needs to happen throughout the race and with the team and the rest of the riders. Um, and, you know, he, he started his career with Froome. It's always nice to, to bookend your career sometimes. And, uh, you know, maybe that's his plan. And then for Mitchelton, there's been plenty going on there. I'll tell you what, you, you were at that team at, at a really good time. Jeez, um, what do you think? A crystal ball. I think we're all, we're all going to be guessing the next couple of years. And Jerry Ryan, I think, firstly, we need to say, has been incredible for the sport of cycling um, in Australia and for that team. But what do you think will happen in the next couple of years? Uh, it is a tricky one. You know, I, I, I don't know. Like you said, it'd be handy to have a crystal ball to check that one out. But like you are, you know, the sport wouldn't be in the situation it is without Jerry Ryan. He's, he's been the backbone of the sport for, you know, not just Mitchelton Scott, but his, his, his teams and the races and the support and the people he's supported be- long before that. And, you know, he's, his passion to keep this team going under his own steam, really, for, mm. for what now, 10, 11, nine years, nine years next year. And he's committed until 2022 or 21, I think, wasn't it? So, well, 10, yes, that'll be a 10 year stint. Yeah. If, if he decides uh, that, that that's the end point, but it, he may not either. Well, that's it. You know, that's what we've got in, well, he's said for now. But uh, look, I, I don't know. It, it seems. Like there's a bit of a change going on there, um, so I guess we just have to see how that goes. The new management's going to have new direction for the team, and we don't know what that is yet. I guess we have to sit and wait and see. They've they've put a lot of effort into, you know, the Yates brothers and and these guys, and that, I don't see that changing. But just they've got a bit of restructuring to do there mm-hmm. by the looks of it. Absolutely. Maka, do you have anything else you want to talk about? Oh, no, I could keep talking to Gossy for <laughs> hours, but we better let him go and uh, get back to that cold weather in Tassie. You have that, mate. We might be in lockdown, but you can keep your snow, your snow, all right? Well, that's yeah. the, uh, you guys are in lockdown. I took the kids up the snow. I took the toboggan out this, uh, this morning. So, uh, we're losing the line. We're losing the line. We're losing the. It <laughs> <laughs> was on the front lawn. So, never seen that before. But hey, at least we, uh, we can venture out of the house. Uh, it was brilliant to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks,
Uh, this was the uh, Zwift Cycling Central podcast. Before we go, uh, let me remind you that you can uh, download, stream, or subscribe to this podcast on our website, uh, Cycling Central, or log a ride with our friend at Zwift. Until next time, it's bye for now. Before we go, a quick shout out to Zwift, the app that turns indoor training into a game. Getting started on Zwift is easy. You just need your bike, a trainer, and your PC, Mac, or Apple device. Zwift offers training plans, interval workouts, and a global community. Get strong and get motivated with every ride. Give people a ride on, and you're sure to get one back, as together you enjoy the massive benefits of social indoor training. Go to Zwift.com today and start your free trial.